And I think that the fact that people are really listening and sitting up to you know, what I'm saying is really an indictment of journalism. It's an indictment because what I'm saying is not new. <laughs> and I'm not the only one who thinks it. Right, so sure, if I'm absolutely. the only one around saying it, then it means that journalism is about to push some people out always created a situation where it's so inaccessible for diversity of opinion. There's just so much more of a wealth of critical analysis that comes from people who aren't white, middle class and have access to the left wing press. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Rennie. Hello, Rennie. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. My, in fact, I'm very excited to have you on because you're somebody who I admire a lot. So hopefully I won't be too gushy. I that... try not to be, just a normal human being. <laughs> no, sure, absolutely. So yes, uh, my first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? Through Twitter. Yeah, I guess through Twitter, although we met in person mm-hmm. at the E15 mum's sort of court thing outside, mm-hmm. outside of there. And yeah, I, I approached you because I know you on Twitter mm-hmm. and spoke to you. That was an amazing day I, 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 for me because I, I was there sort of protesting. I don't know if you were like journalism or protest or both mm-hmm. that day, but yeah. Um, so well, I, it, was, um, it was quite close to me. It was about half an hour cycles to me and I didn't have any time sensitive commitments that morning so I thought I'd go down it wasn't really in a journalist capacity I mean I was an activist before I was a journalist right. so it was kind of both but I took my phone to record some speeches and stuff but um, I just don't think that you can have much legitimacy as a journalist who speaks about inequality if you don't actually go and see what the hell is going on right. rather than just commenting on it from behind your laptop so I mean, it's, it's, it's always, like, I find it's like, I go on a, to a protest like that and I feel a lot of hope because there's mm. a lot of people together and coming from lots of different points of view, right, mm. in that, in that, in that meet-up, lots of different political points of view and lots mm. of different people, uh, and you have all that hope and then you sort of go, go away and, and uh, look at the newspapers again and you sort of, all of the, all of the, uh, all of the hope fades away for me, but mm. I, I try to keep it in my heart a little bit. Mm. The second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Um, I'm a freelance journalist, uh, and I write about race and gender and inequality and those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's I guess that's how I that's how I came across you. Mm. Uh, I guess before I started following you, I saw a lot of articles that people mm. retweeted into my timeline that mm. you'd written, and I read them. Mm. And I mean, I find it. I don't know. I don't know whether it's relevant for me to appreciate your work mm. to a certain extent as a as a you know white middle class. Uh, everything's bad guy um, but uh, but I find like you're writing to, to really like speak to what I see in the, what I see in the world and and, I, and also to teach me a lot that I don't see because of my, my relative levels of privilege well I should probably say on record that I don't really have anything against white middle class men sure I just have um, a strong aversion to the fact that they take up they're overrepresented in all levels of power don't yeah. have, have real issues with that you just have to look at both power and public and private sectors to see that it's completely over-dominated by people who recruit in their own image and likeness repeatedly. Um, It's no coincidence that um, these middle and upper class men um, hold 
the majority of the nation's wealth between like a hand a handful of hands like it, it's all interlinked to me so yeah. I don't have anything against them but I do have an issue with the fact that, that power isn't democratised and also you know as somebody who's a feminist and interested in feminism and sort of understands how a lot of our institutions and organisations have been um, created around an image of a particular worker, productive worker, right. um, it's impossible to not look at the identity of that worker and then see how everybody who doesn't fit that is essentially losing out. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, I agree, but I mean, I mean, the only reason I flag it up is just because you know, it needs to be flagged up, but mm. I, my, 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 my position has to be acknowledged. But um, I, I totally... A good example of this is that Apple and Facebook are saying that their female employees can now freeze their eggs, um, you know, and that, and that the companies will pay for that, which is another example of instead of making the workplace more friendly to people who don't fit that archetype, that stereotypical archetype of a worker, instead, people, you know, that could be implemented through flexible working, you know, generously paid maternity leave, etc., etc. Instead, people who don't fit um, that mould of white, middle-class, productive, able-bodied, straight man. Um, instead, you're given the opportunity to make yourself mould into that mould rather than yeah. shaping themselves against the people who don't fit in. So, well, I, I mean, I guess to a certain extent, because of my because of my privilege and position, like, one of the ways I come to these arguments as well is that I don't want to be that model either. So, I mean, I want to get rid of these fixed ideas of who we can be. Like, I, I think mm. that... that that, that it's not healthy for white middle class men to be that worker that mm. you talk about. I don't think it's healthy that, for anyone to be that worker. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, my point of view is that it's in people like mine's best interest mm. to listen to uh, the alternatives that are being, you know, it's a, as a selfish point of view, let alone any, any. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't think it really works for anybody, but. Um the left still has really big problems of understanding critiques of inequality that don't come from white men. Right. Still has some serious problems with that. Right. And I think that's because there's a lot of people on the left who are invested in that. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, for sure. Mm. And so you sort of, like, started being a journalist, I guess, at 19, is that about right? Well, no, I was writing my, my blog then, but, um, and I sort of, like... I was just interested in different things, like I was getting involved in some activism at university, started blogging alongside it, about just sort of stuff that I saw on the news. And um, then I sort of like entered a competition, Channel 4 were doing a, a Best Young Blogger competition, and I entered it, and um, they gave me a high commendation. So it was one girl won it, and then three other people got high commendations. And now, six years later, maybe five and a half years later, heard again of any of those other people including the girl who won it which is strange because they were all very good but I don't know what they were doing now and then from there I carried on blogging I did an internship at a news organization at a left-leaning news organization got some commissions from there whilst I stood at university but I was more interested in the activism rather than the journalism still then but the writing was just something that I loved writing so that was sort of naturally went alongside it and then I was always involved in feminist activism, going to events and stuff blah 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 because that's what I loved it and I was interested in doing it I also wanted to meet people who had the same interests and um, then next thing you know I'm involved in big national feminist debates which <coughs> I'm still unsure how that actually happened 
the sake of the tape, I've got a cold, so just. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Deal with the coughing, please. <laughs> forgive yeah. the sickness that's in the room, and also to, for the benefit of the tape, we're we're recording in a, a, a cafe in uh, in Hackney, so um, that's why there's background sounds. <laughs> so yeah, I was just I was involved in activism and feminism, and the, I never really like tried particularly hard to get involved in journalism, but it was through my activism that my writing became high right. profile and widely read, and then people were approaching me, so I just thought. Okay, why not? Yeah, I mean, on your website you talk about being a reader <coughs> as much as a writer. Right? Mm. Those, those are the things when you were when you were younger, mm. reading and writing were the things that appealed. And then mm. I guess when you when you had political things to say, that that was the the natural well, progression yeah, exactly. for that to go through. Exactly, but I never the idea of trying to become a, a studying journalist, journalism, or you know, trying to be a reporter in a newsroom or on a local paper that never appealed to me, and I. I never pursued those avenues, right? Because I never was interested in, I suppose, that kind of reporting. I guess I made reporting work for me in a different way. I suppose. Right. I mean, I guess if you had been through the like the the more mainstream like process of learning how to be a journalist, you would probably be a, a more mainstream journalist, and therefore with less things that are, are interesting to say. In my, mm. in my view, but, I mean that's again. But also, I probably. I would undoubtedly still be thinking the same things, but I'd be in an atmosphere that would be more probably dangerous to say them. Right. So I'd have much more license to challenge and criticise things as a person who's not going to the same workplace at nine o'clock every morning. Yeah. With a boss saying, "Why did you say that on Twitter?" So. Yeah. Mm. I mean, one of the things when I when I do conversations with people I sort of always sort of like ask them about like when they got into the thing that they're passionate about mm. and it's sort of a strange thing to sort of ask someone about um, activism or politics when did you get into it when mm. their politics are based on their own identity to a certain extent like you've always been who you are right but there must have been a time when you became aware of the, the problems surrounding that right um, I don't think so my politics aren't really around my own identity I wouldn't say that I okay, first, sorry. Yeah. First got involved um, probably in this 2010 when students were organising. There was lots of activism around tuition fees. Right. But okay. before then, um, I was very much involved in feminism. It, it wasn't so much about my own identity as I knew that there was something seriously wrong because everything around me seemed to be weighted into the favour of men. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And. You know, I was an English literature student, so I was being taught critical skills, and I very quickly picked up through those critical skills, through reading some feminist texts, how much a lot of the stuff that a lot of the great texts that I was being given to read were pre-sexist and quite racist right. too. Like, it wasn't really much. A, it was just basically like I don't know, like a Sudoku puzzle, right? It was literally just like looking at something and pointing out there's something wrong here, there's something wrong here, you know. Like, it's actively discriminatory. So it was more about, I started to sort of understand like what what power was and how um, some people had more of it and that was detrimentally affecting others. That's, that's how I got into it. Right. And the student fees protest was a big catalyst for it. And then I got involved in my student union and went on to get elected women's officer and then student union president. and. In the student union president role, I was—it was my job essentially to negotiate some of the power out of the university's hands. So 
my interests have always been in power, really. Right. Um, not, not sort of like getting it for myself, but looking at where it's concentrated and, and why it's concentrated there. Right. And uh, as my politics become a bit more sophisticated, I'm becoming more interested in reading around economics um, and, and housing and food. And right. <laughs> who gets the majority of that and who else loses out, you know? And it just so happens because all of these things are completely interlinked. I've got a friend who um, used to work at Greenpeace. She's very interested in environmental activism. She's an Asian woman and she said that the way that she found her black feminism was through environmental activism because she realized that the people globally who are bearing the brunt of some of the worst environmental sort of like catastrophes are black and Asian women, like globally, right. in the global sure. south, right? So all of these things are completely interlinked, and often I think on my politics, people try to delegitimize it by saying that it's you know it, it's about issues far removed from other issues of inequality, but it's all interlinked. And those people who think that racism and sexism aren't their problem are people who are benefiting from right. it. Right. So. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, I didn't. I also, I didn't mean to like re- reduce your like mm. politics to identity politics. I, I, I certainly mm. know that you're very excellent at structural critique right and I guess I'm I was looking to how my own understanding of politics kind of came from uh from from sort of moments of sort of feeling like oh suddenly I'm something is revealed that I hadn't seen before Mm -hmm. and I was trying to sort of like see how it might be if 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 you don't have those I don't I I guess I feel like I've got the sunglasses of privilege right I can't see reality as well as I'd like to but, but I guess I, I maybe stupidly uh, think that people who who come from a different background don't have those sunglasses as much that you see more how the things are working simply because you're, you're on the cutting edge of it rather than sailing along without a care in the world like well, people I, are privileged. I also think that the, the more interested I got in like um, politics and party politics when I was a bit younger, the more it seemed to me that it was just basically rich white guys passing the ball to each other, people who didn't actually live the policies that were being enacted. Essentially people who went to the same school had minor political differences. That's it, like that's our political system. People right. who went to the same school or university who have minor political differences. People who had never lived in poverty, people who would you know, never be disabled, etc, etc. My identity has always been something that I've been aware of because for as long as I can remember, I've been marked out as different. That's right. what happens when you grow up black in a racist world, right. it's as simple as that. And uh, I think all young black people have this point where they decide that they're going to challenge it or they're going to try and assimilate. Yeah. But you don't go through life being a young black person being oblivious to it. No. But you just did, there's vast differences in the way that young black people try to um, deal with it. Some people say, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, start a business, that's how you solve racism. Other people say, go and protest, that's how you solve it. So, yeah. So it's always been aware, I've always been aware of it, but. I mean, I guess, I guess that's the, the thing, like. For me, growing up, I was, you know, politically left, and so I was always against racism in a, in a you know, as a concept, mm. right? As a, as people talk about, like, for people like me, it's sort of an intellectual concept, right, mm. rather than a, a lived experience. Mm. And then my my little sister um, had my niece, who is a, a person of colour, like mm. I would say mixed race, but there's complications with any any descriptor really, but she would define us as mixed race. Um, and suddenly these intellectual ideas were massively much more real, you know, yeah. 
that now when I talk to her, she's nine now, she can't imagine, you know, she can't imagine a, a, a black woman being Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like, I think when I was her age, I might have been able to imagine that because I was brought up in a progressive like uh, household and I would be and that 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 idea was pushed on me but but she she understands the realities more and so it's much harder for her to even dream right even imagine uh, more for her future and that makes me very sad but obviously I can't you know structurally it has to be dealt with and this is what happens again and again like when Kim Kardashian had her daughter she said oh I've realised I always knew that racism was on the periphery but now I've got a black child oh my god racism is terrifying and and um, some a human being that I brought in the world will be faced with this right. and often when men have girl children they right. say oh my god sexism is so terrible it feels so much more real for me now because they can't seem to conceptualise the fact that, that how how real it is and how it affects somebody's day-to-day life and until a human being comes into the world who they emotionally invested in who's affected by it right. right so it's easy to be against racism as a um, as an abstract concept but it's also really easy to uh, perpetuate it without even right acknowledging that you're perpetuating it and then becoming arsy and defensive when people say you're perpetuating right it, so. absolutely and uh, i mean then the funny thing about it is it's, it's like um people People don't just perpetuate it. People like me don't just perpetuate racism. They also deny its existence anymore. Like this nonsense about um, the, you know the post-racial world and all of this. That like oh Obama's in power, so there's no racism anymore. I mean that isn't borne out by the real experiences of people. Um, but but if you're, I don't know. I mean it's as, as long as we have power that's so drastically swayed into the hands of a few people who are overrepresented in all areas of all corridors of power who have never faced racism it will continue to be like that because those are the people who create the narratives that's why I wanted to be a journalist to challenge some of those narratives like those are the people who create the narratives that we are supposed to buy into yeah no I mean and and, and I think that's I think you know I think I mean it may sound ridiculous for somebody who's talking at the moment but I think the best thing that people like me can do is listen to a certain extent which is not to say that we can't advocate you know where we can Mm. to do because we have power right Mm. so we should relinquish that in whatever ways we can but listening is uh, a very underused skill in uh, white middle class men Mm, exactly Uh, and the more that I become the more known that I become as a journalist the more I come across people who in my personal life socialise with <laughs> and the more I realise that um, these people have the exactly the same secure insecurities as me but they've gone to private school and they've gone to Eton and they've gone to X and they've gone to Y and they've had a, they've had confidence taught into them. Right. Um, and they've been taught that they're entitled to that. Yeah. They're they're entitled to X, Y, they're entitled to that public space, they're entitled to that CEO position and they're entitled to be an MP because the world's theirs. Right. And little black girls don't get that sort of teaching. Right. So. No, I mean, I, I think of that as the, the, the keys to culture, right? Like, mm. I, I feel like I've got it. I, I've, I've definitely got those keys. Like, if I speak on the phone, I know how to click into, mm-hmm. you know, into the middle class voice that will get me mm. uh, what I want. I'm a, I mean, I'm, I'm vastly insecure in loads of ways. Uh, more, I feel like, than people who went to Eton or, or wherever who I meet who have, like, the extra spec like even more keys like the higher up you go like I'm sure you know it, Nick Clegg has the the top keys you know he can go walk around and just expect things to go his way I mean exactly whereas 
um, you don't have the luxury of doing that if you don't fit into that mould. I mean, I always, I had a conversation with a friend who was basically, he grew up quite in a working class background, but uh, his parents were like old school socialists. There was quite a lot of cultural capital going around his household. And he said that uh, because of that, he could blag it. Even though he was from a rough area, right. he, he could blag it. Um, whereas, because uh, he always takes the mick out of me because I pronounce a lot of words wrong. Because right. uh, when I was young, I didn't have, like, I was brought up by a single mum and I um, just didn't have access to a lot of stuff, but I was in the library all the time, so I was reading a lot. So there's a lot of words I've read, but was never spoken to me. <laughs> like, right. They were just, because uh, I wasn't surrounded by that cultural capital, by, you know, educated and intelligent people who'd been to university. It was just me and my mum. Right. <laughs> so I wasn't surrounded by the people who were speaking those words. So I, I know of them, but I pronounce them wrong even today at the age of 25. So, and he always says, he always says, I blagged it. And, <laughs> and um, you're one of the people who has to be careful when you go into that public situation, you know, in, in case you pronounce that word wrong and everybody laughs at you because then you sort of give away that you, you didn't come from that kind of background right so yeah yeah it, it's a really complicated there's all so, sorts of so many complicated elements to mm. all of this because I mean you know even if you if, even if you speak absolutely correctly mm. um, you're you're marked out as other in many in many situations exactly. regardless right yeah and a lot of black people a lot of, I think, bright young black people from working class backgrounds can get by by speaking right, dressing well, and climbing like that. But at the end of the day, you're still other. And you have to spend a long time proving to those people that you're not other. And that's not the kind of acceptance I want. No. That's why I'm glad I don't work a nine to five. <laughs> well, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's kind of like related to like what you were saying in my experience of like understanding racism more, mm. not better. Like, I'm not. You know, I can never understand it fully, but is that the, one of the things about that sort of thing is like when when men say, "Oh, once they have a daughter," I always think, you know, mm. surely you should be able to have empathy with women, regardless mm. of if you've got one of them in your family, <laughs> because women are, you know, humans, yeah, and you're a human. Is, all of the cultural messages that men right. get contravene that. Right, I, <laughs> so, I, I agree. Yeah. So they have a very hard time empathising with women as human beings who have the same personal boundaries, bodily integrity right. as they do. They, they, have, they have that issue because every cultural message around them tells them that you deserve a woman, you, you win a woman because you're a nice guy or whatever. And I think the same is for white people as well. Like yeah. Every cultural message uh, contravenes the fact that people of colour are their peers, intellectual, social, you know, economic peers, every cultural message. You, and you just got to look at pop culture for that. I remember when in the Great Intersectionality war, Wars of 2012, right? Right. Um, Billy Bragg said something um, online about um, white privilege or something that um, academic, guilt, guilty white academics have come up with this phrase. And again, it's like, so you can't even comprehend the fact that black people are intelligent enough to come up with political right. theory, right? Because right. that's, that's what I read from that. Not all academics are white. Like critical race theory is a very um, well-respected and globally known, like um, academic yeah. sort of um, strand. But well, well, some saw... people can come couldn't come to the conclusion that there were intelligent black people who had worked for twenty years and come up with terminology to explain 
the global phenomenon of racism. They couldn't believe it, so right. they were like, "Well, the guilty white people have come up with that because." Um, yeah, that's that's the implication that I get. But then I think <laughs> that's an interesting thing. Though I think that part of that, and I, I like. You know, I, I went. I, I saw uh, Kimberly Crenshaw doing mm. a talk at the LSE, like I think it was last year or the year before. So, mm. uh, you, you were probably there, I think. Mm. Um, and there are like lots of uh, black academics who have come up with that theory. I mean, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but I think that, that it's a weird thing from, from Billy Bagpool because I think he's actually. I mean, I'm I'm no defender of him. There's mm. many areas that I don't agree with him about mm. uh, that he need these days certainly, but. Um, He's changed his uh, he's changed his line on that now. Mm. He's actually come round, so he's actually finally listened from mm. his position of considerable privilege now. Mm. Um, but but I think that part of the the resistance to to what people what white um, working class people see as academic words mm. comes from a, an inter, a, another intersection of them being like scared of, the, of academic words because mm-hmm. of that, that the fact that they feel like they don't have a, an access to academia mm. and they don't pay attention enough to research to find out who is saying the words and they mm. just assume those words equal like problematic and trying to distract you know I mean I'm not I'm not defending Perhaps, it right but. But, but I mean I think it's safe to say that um, over the last few years at least like some of the academic language from critical race theory has entered the mainstream lexicon right, and everyone's using it, or at least, safe to say, in my corner of the left, is is um, is, is well and widely understood. Yeah. And the same people who bleat on about reading Marx and reading all of this fancy feminist critical theory, the new states where feminists love their fucking old second wave they do. feminist critical theory, um, can't pick up a book by a black woman for some reason. Right. I don't know. It's like they touch the book and it burns their hand or some shit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's strange. <laughs> it just, honestly, but I, I kind of like, it annoys me, but I can't blame these people because every cultural message that you get contravenes the idea that black people can be intelligent, that black people are academics, that black people lead universities, um, head up um, global departments of, you know, critical race theory, every every message. Right. <laughs> And, and that's a message going to everyone, right? Exactly. So that's going to barely, black people too, exactly. unfortunately, right? And there's barely any black people in the academy, so it's unsurprising that people would um, come away from like some new language about race and go, oh my God, like some guilty, self-hating white people have come up with this. Because I can understand why somebody would think there are no black people in the academy or just completely skim over it. It's this right. self-perpetuating circle, really. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, and, and like intersectional <coughs> feminism and think, thinking is yeah, something that is becoming like more aware, people are much more aware of that in culture. Um, but I guess it's also being like, and I, I think appropriation is a complicated thing, but it clearly is in some ways being appropriated by people who are saying very unintersectional uh, things with it. I mean, like it's a complicated. Like I define myself as an intersectional feminist, right? Mm. But I'm a white middle-class man, mm. so I am aware that that there are valid arguments for me not using either of those terms about mm. myself. Um, but I see people who are using that term very confidently now in in the press mm. who aren't who aren't black women mm. who are saying things like using it to sort of twisting it to mm. say different sorts of things. I mean, I think what do you think about they that? lost the bloody argument. They lost that <laughs> argument two years ago, and so now they're trying to co-opt the argument for people who were arguing against them two years ago. They're right. trying to co-opt it for some I don't know warped feelings of legitimacy or something. But at the end of the day, 
um, a feminism that only focuses on gender and was challenged two years ago and it lost. Right. <laughs> it lost the argument. Like, women, disabled women, um, trans women, sex workers, black women, we won those arguments because at the end of the day, like, there's just so much more of a wealth of critical analysis that comes from people who aren't white, middle class and have access to the left wing press. There's just much more of a wealth of critical analysis right. there, you know? Like, I mean, what these same women were saying that um, intersectional conversation shuts down debate. If anything, it opens it up, you know? Joining ideas about racial inequality and gender inequality opens a whole new book. You can write thousands of words on it if you wanted to. It opens it up. These women, they lost the argument and now they're trying to run up and run and play catch up to try and legitimise themselves because feminism's cool now. And to, as far as, it's just sad, really. I would rather they just hung on to their um, dying breed of white feminism and, you know, just go down with the ship. <laughs> well, yeah, although I guess they're getting, doing a lot of damage while they're, while, while, mm. they're, while they're hanging on to that. Exactly. But, you know, this sort of Sheryl Sandberg-esque, high-powered um, white woman climb the ladder feminism is... It's just not the reality for the vast majority of women globally, let alone in this country. Right. Like, you've got to take into account other forms of inequality to have a feminism that is really going to attack power, right? And do you, I mean, so you've been writing about these things for, for some time. Mm. Um, although, you know, you, you started young, so you're, 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 you're still, from the, from the point of view of being, I'm sure, like, considered to be a young journalist, mm. like, always the word young will be thrown around mm. when, when being described in you. Mm. But, but, but I feel like you've thought a lot about these things. Are, are there any kind of air, like solutions or approaches that you think that, that, <coughs> that you're being drawn towards now? Well, you know, I'm interested, as much as it doesn't seem so, I'm interested in the general health and well-being of, of Britain's left. But the reason that it fails is because it concedes and hands power to white dudes all the time who just, they're so far removed from the reality of what, middle class white men are so far removed from the reality of what um, living in poverty is like in this country. Poverty is feminised, poverty is gendered, like the Focus E15 mums showed us that, right? Um, You know, people who are university educated can't can't really empathise with the struggle of the focusing 15 months at the most we can sympathize and support yeah. and pass the mind right. right i personally think that the left needs to stop fetishizing white middle class men who go to oxbridge right because i just think that we'll never win if, if you don't concede and pass the mind to people who are really fucking struggling but there's so much classism racism misogyny um and it all sort of like comes together in this, well, we need to speak for those people because they can't speak for themselves. That, that's what I think the solution is. Yeah. Like, like, in order to deal, to create real solidarity, there just needs to be some listening, as you said. There needs to be some serious listening. I can't tell you the amount of left-wing events I've been to, and I spoke about racism, and the people want to argue with me. They want to argue about, about my experiences and perception of racism. So, 
I personally just can't organise in solidarity with people who keep telling me that I'm, I'm wrong and that there isn't really any racism in this country and we all have to work together because right. it means that even if the left does win, win there'll still be some serious problems well, around race there. It's so. not a win, is it? If, <laughs> exactly. if, 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 if it's not equal, it's not a win. Exactly. And that's, I mean, and the fact I think the Focus E15 mums, one of the things that I found very inspiring about them mm. was that they weren't relegated to the back. Yeah, they, exactly. the, 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 the white middle class and the, or at least white working class men that were involved mm. uh, in, in are, are involved in a supporting role mm-hmm. um, and bringing their, mm-hmm. you know, their, the keys. They're bringing the keys of culture with them, but they're mm-hmm. they're letting the, the mums be the not letting the mums are demanding to be the focus and they are supporting that and that's that's the only thing I think we can do. There just needs to be some listening like in order for people who come from a position of privilege to embrace those who don't as equals it means it means first having to come to having to accept essentially that you're not their equal like they in all intents and purposes the way this country works you're not like you are more valued socially than them so you need to stay, take a step back and listen up and pass the mic and i think the question of um, white working, working class people on the left is actually understanding that the there's often this narrative right that white working class people are more racist than white middle right, class people right. or something which is just I mean, I've experienced the worst racism in, in the last 10 years. That's when I got into journalism, basically. Like, so much resistance from <laughs> white middle class people. Like, right. I've experienced the worst racism in the last 10 years. And, and I think if you've grown up in like a working class, like multicultural area, right. you just know that there's much more solidarity. There's just so much more in common. Like when you come from a working class area or from poverty, right. often when I say, when I talk about you know racism and white privilege, people go, oh well, what about the white working class? As if class and race are two separate things. Right. You know, um, as far as I'm concerned, they're completely inextricable. Like they're they're so tightly intertwined, right? And um, let's not lie to ourselves that there's a there's a thriving black middle class in this country. Like right. the majority of people in this color in this country are working class. Like it's this, it's the same thing. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, I mean, there's even there, are, you know, there are people of color who are uh, <laughs> upper class now. Like in, 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 in some, in, but, but, but the, the, I, I feel like that you get allowed into the upper class if you're prepared to play exactly the game that they're announcing. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to start critiquing black people who are, who are upper class. That's, that's certainly not my. <laughs> certainly not my position to do so. But also, the left really like fetishizes the idea of working classes somehow being coalescing around like white men and flat caps, and that's right. just again not the case. At it's all. women. Mm-hmm. Right. It's women. It's women from um, a variety of different backgrounds. I think often when I talk about race and white privilege uh, to white people, they literally feel like they will lose something. Like they feel so affronted like they will literally lose something I'm not quite sure like a part of their bank account or identity or house or whatever but they feel literally so offended and affronted by it but it's not really about losing it's just about acknowledging that this country's identity was built on the backs of racism and slavery and um, just pretending that it hasn't and that um, white people don't continue to benefit from that 200 years on is is not the answer Right. right so 
Yeah, I mean, the weird thing I find is that people feel like if we accept that reality, which I fully agree with, that somehow uh, that that means that, that I'm, I'm omitting complete responsibility for it. I'm not saying that I'm completely responsible, but that, that I benefit from all of those things and that I need to take that into account when I live my life. That's not the same thing as... as, 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 as claiming full responsibility for exactly, it and, and, yeah. and taking that guilt on or, mm-hmm. which is not to say there isn't stuff that should legitimately mm-hmm. make us feel on a racial basis very guilty for mm-hmm. what for what white people have done mm-hmm. um, but pretending that we're all the same and some of us are clearly benefiting more than others is not the answer and I actually think that a lot of the left are invested in that lie so yeah sure I mean it's this this idea that once you get to the point where you're in the privilege club then you sort of shut the door rather mm. than rather than look and see who else is not allowed in and maybe maybe there shouldn't be a club in the first place we should actually all have like less who are at the top and people at the bottom have more I mean that's absolutely right that's my my point of view but yeah I just honestly I think in order for the left to win like there needs to be a lot of conceding to people who are struggling and just listening yeah um, and I don't think that's happening I mean do you think there is any 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 part to play in terms so so I mean I'm thinking about doing something that is kind of trying to speak to men um, and sort of like um, engage with uh, ways in which my male privilege has benefited me but also ways in which um, being structured in this like I have to be a man I did, you know I was quite gender non-conforming at school I received like um, homophobic abuse even though I'm straightish um, like uh, the, the, the sort of talk about how how patriarchy hurts and damages men but also how men uh, can't help but be a part of that it's something I want to talk about but then is it my place to do that right well I would suggest so like men always used to come to me and ask how can I help and why people do that more and more often and the fact of the matter is I don't have the answers right. but if you also think that the situation is quite bad then please talk to your peers because you know actually it's emotionally exhausting for me to do right, that like, exactly. it's emotionally exhausting for me to ex- keep explaining why racism and sexism is bad like I'm fucking tired of it like sure. I don't hate doing events where I'm having to constantly like be on the defensive and be like here is why this is racism is bad here is how it plays out in a readers etc etc and people say well somebody who isn't affected by it puts a hand up and says well I disagree because I don't experience that racism I'm, it's emotionally exhausting like if you have the social power to influence your circles and change them for the better do like I have big problems with men seeking spaces in feminism to dominate them or white people doing that in anti-racist spaces but I have full support for men talking to other men about sexism because let's be honest we live in a sexist world and men are more likely to listen to other men about it than than women like when women talk about it men go oh they're complaining they're moaning or when when black people try and explain it to white people white people go oh they're so aggressive oh my god like I can't believe it Right, as, so, if, as if white people aren't aggressive when they're, when they're called on the racism, right? Exactly. Like, like, this is the funniest thing I, I find, like, this idea of, like, women being emotional, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, you just see men, men being the, emotional all the fucking time, everyone. Men are the most emotional. Right. In my short time in a leadership position at my student union, whenever I tried to stop a man doing something, they would pop up and get angry and start shouting at me. They were the most emotional. And right. they would say, you've contravened my authority. Right. <laughs> 
there were the most emotional. Yeah, I mean, I fully, I fully, <laughs> I fully see myself and my behaviour as as massively irrational and uh, emotional all the time. Like the idea that men can't. Um, can't be either of those things is, 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 is you know ridiculous yeah. but I would I would say men and white people and especially white men like if you're interested in these issues then please go and talk to your peers about this so that I don't have to right and make the social circles that you move in more safe for people who are currently excluded well, I think the key is not to then turn around and tell black people how they should experience mm. racism isn't but, that's the thing isn't but it? also I think that like because like all the cultural messages often told these kind of people that you're entitled to this space you're entitled to that space like so much so that they don't even see themselves entitled to it they just see it as neutral and that they think that everybody has the same access right um, when they see a space that's explicitly not for them, they're like, oh my god, why would you leave me out? Like, that's so unfair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a good example of that is like um, straight people insisting that they have to go to the gay club, men insisting that they have to come to women only spaces, right. you know. Because no. they're, so, they're so entitled to it, they feel so comfortable that they believe it's a neutral space and they don't understand there are implicit things going on there. But, that actually make it quite exclusive and exclusionary to, right. to people who, who aren't like them. It's different from a men, you know, a men's only club, right, is a mm. position of power which is excluding people from that power. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very different if people want to talk about their experiences of oppression without the oppressors there, right? Mm-hmm. That's a completely different thing. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I've never, I'm very, yeah, I, mm. I, don't, I don't insist on being... When I call myself a feminist, I don't think that that means I get I should be invited to women-only spaces. Mm. I just think that ultimately there have to be some uh, spaces where we're all there, mm. um, but that does not mean in any way that there shouldn't exactly. be spaces where there are you know that are specific. Yeah, but I also think that like there's a lot of men who seem to be listening to this message, and they're not really taking it to the places where they have influence, like. They're, they're not, instead they're trying to muscle in and lecture women and people of colour how to do it. Like, And I wonder to myself why they don't take what they've learned to the place where they have influence, where people actually listen to them because, you know, we all have like our spheres of influence and I think it's because they're scared. Yeah, I think sadly that is I it. think that it's because they're scared. And I just, isn't that the most pathetic thing when, you know, women and people of colour literally put our sometimes lies but often reputations on the line to challenge this bullshit but men can't right (laughs) i I think it's pathetic well i think it it is pathetic i think it but i i i suspect unfortunately that it part of it comes from (coughs) years and years of privilege Mm. making it it so unfamiliar to Mm. be in a situation where suddenly everyone's against you yeah yeah, they, they can't deal with that like in a way, yeah. I feel lucky that I was massively bullied all the way through school, right? Because I have, I, I've had lots of experience of, of, of not being, mm. <laughs> not being listened to, um, and uh, by by white people, like and what and men, right? So I can I can challenge them. Like it's more familiar to me, so I'm less scared. Although I'm not saying that I'm mm. do it perfectly or, or do it well or anything like that. Yeah, just uh, it strikes me as um, I just think it's a bit. Cowardly, like I, I don't know, like are they scared of being socially ostracised or something? Yeah, I mean they are, but that's not. <laughs> yeah, a, exactly. that's no excuse. Exactly, and it's not even that much of a, like social or being socially ostracised isn't really. I don't think it's a punishment. Like you'll eventually, if you challenge these things, you'll find yourself around people who agree. Yes. So, 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. You're someone who started in internet media, mm-hmm. um, and now you're sort of like uh, in a position where you're part of the media, even as a critic of it. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the media as, a, as an entity? How do you how do you feel? I hate it? working in a profession that's 96% white. I hate it. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any professions that aren't. Journalism's 96% white. That's, that's according to the latest NUJ demographic sort of like survey. It's ridiculous. I mean, I think it's really important to challenge um, some of the incre- increasingly racist narratives and sexist narratives in journalism. And, you know, it's good to see that there's a groundswell of support for these sort of things, but it's just absolutely ridiculous that it's dominated by Oxbridge white males it's just these people are not the best brains in our country they're not (laughs) but they think that they are they have the arrogance of it's just awful so I feel like somebody who's you know I feel I still feel on the outside now I work from home I set my own schedules it's not like I'm going to an office every day and there's work Christmas parties and office politics to deal with I'll speak freely um, and nobody tells me off. So I still feel like an outsider in that respect, but it's safe to say that I am on the inside now. I can't, can't deny that. So I sort of feel like I'm straddling the two. It's, it's depressing. It's depressing how I think res- resistant the journalism is to diversity because ultimately the people at the top who are overwhelmingly white and male just don't think that there's a problem or you know there's diversity schemes here there etc etc but and people are now ready to understand that 96% of white people in journalism is just not representative of the country at all let alone the southeast where journalism is often concentrated so they've gone okay that's bad but they're still not holding themselves accountable for that situation like they're not saying have I how have I contributed to this situation they just think that it's come out of nowhere but that situation has not come around by accident. It's because to get into journalism now, you have to go through 100 un- unpaid internships. Who can afford to work unpaid? Yes. My unpaid internship was, was... The only reason I could do it is because my family live in London. That's it. Which is ridiculous. I mean, working class kids, poor white and black working class kids, cannot afford to work for free. Right. You just can't. I mean, it's the same in the arts where I sort of like, oh, uh, uh, that's why we're not getting like black and, 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 other, mm-hmm. and other minority well, voices exactly. in the arts. Is, uh, I mean, I actually worked in a um, clothes shop for three months to afford my one week, no, no, two weeks unpaid internship at a newspaper. Three months literally hanging up bras <laughs> until 11 pm to afford to work two weeks unpaid at newspaper it's ridiculous and not everybody can even get that it's harder now to get that job hanging up bras in a clothes shop right I mean it's just it's absurd and it's it's only going to get worse the industry runs on nepotism I thank myself every day but I didn't enter journalism through you know working in an office or anything because I would be I think I would just be like severely restricted in what I can say. You see this in all successful black people. They don't talk about the racism in their industry until they leave, basically. Right. And women do that as well. Sure. They're quiet whilst they're in, and then when they're out, 
you know, when they're in their 60s, they're like, oh, there's some serious stuff that needs to be sorted out. It's just, I can't believe the industry still runs on nepotism and who you know and how long you can work for free. It's, it's completely outrageous. And um, it's, going, it's going to make our media morally more right-wing. Yeah, and reinforcing you, the same you push out people with di diverse opinions. So you just keep recruiting your own image and likeness of people who who think like you and speak like you and went to the same universities as you and can afford to work for free because mummy and daddy will put them through it. Like, so I think it's safe to say that journalism is a love-hate relationship. I love the writing. I love reporting. I love interviewing people. I love all of that stuff. I think it's great. I feel very, very privileged to be able to enter on my own terms. And that's really the internet that allowed me to enter journalism on my own terms. But I recognise that I want at some point that it's going to reach saturation point and there's yeah. going to be have to be another way for working class black girls from Tottenham to get into <laughs> journalism. And, uh, and I guess you're in a position now as well where you're being asked to be like the voice of mm. young black women, right? Mm. Like, like more and more because you're the only uh, person of colour in the room, right? Or mm. on the panel or, you know, mm. so that, that must be a sort of strange development for an individual to be expected to... Yeah, but I mean, I'm, people try to if people try to project that onto me, that's their problem, right. and it's a sign that you probably need a little bit, a few more people of colour in the room, like a few more women in the room. Sure. Like, I only speak for myself. Yeah, yeah. I feel extremely lucky and privileged to have built up a following and a readership of people who agree with me. But I don't, I don't attempt to try and speak on behalf no, of anybody no, else. Absolutely. Like, because, I, I mean, how could I? I work from home. Like, I barely see people. So <laughs> I don't go to the annual black conference and be like, right. okay, what's the issues that we're going to rail against this year, you know? Like, so, yeah, it's just, it's vastly disappointing. But I feel very, very lucky to be able to enter on my own terms and, you know, speak to editors as equals and negotiate and stuff and not have to hold my tongue and not have to assimilate. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Uh, and that's that's the beauty of the internet, really. That's really the beauty of the internet. When I was Twittering, it's crazy to think that 10,000 people are sort of watching what I'm saying and stuff because I still I don't think that my opinion is that important, really. And I think that the fact that people are really listening and sitting up to you know, what I'm saying is really an indictment of journalism. It's an indictment because... What I'm saying is not new, <laughs> and I'm not the only one who thinks it. Right, so sure, if I'm absolutely. the only one around saying it, then it means that journalism is about to push some people out, or it's created a situation where it's so inaccessible for diversity of opinion, and that's that's not good at all. So yeah. Mm. I guess before I ask the last question, what question would you have asked yourself if you'd have been in this position? You're an interviewer and, and, and stuff like that. Like, have I have I missed anything that I should have covered or? Um, not really. I mean, you could have asked a bit more about the Great Intersectionality Awards in 2012, but I don't really have huge, huge amount sort of to say on that. Apart from the fact that the groundswell of people essentially moving to redefine their feminism and make it a bit more inclusive was a marker that that more and more inclusive feminism won. Really, um, it was a difficult time. And um, I think that's because I felt like I was relatively new and I had all of these like much more established journalists essentially taking the opportunity to try and delegitimise me at every corner. 
I think they were scared. I generally feel like um, people who are very, very invested in these conversations about inclusion, yet they're not coming from the side where they're saying, we want inclusion. They're pushing back on that. That's a scary thing. <laughs> like, yes. That's a scary thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Whether they, they repeat over and over again, it's fine. There's nothing wrong. What are you complaining about? Or they're the people who are essentially trying to trip up the people campaigning for more inclusion is. Well, they've really, I don't know, those intersectionality wars have resulted in, in certainly the masks coming off certain people who I used to respect more as journalists who now uh, I feel very comfortable saying very, very problematic things suddenly uh, in result of that. Like, uh, like I've been surprised by uh, to see the mask revealed so much, you know, like it's no longer people covering up their, their racism, sexism, trans <coughs> exclusivity, their, their sex worker, object, their pressure, their whole phobia, right? Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not hiding those things anymore, mm -hmm. which I think is in a way a real success of those wars, right? Cause well, yeah, I think that the only thing that I can come away from that period of time is that people are scared, like, because why would you be opposed to people having a bit more space to discuss their issues and challenge and critique stuff and why would you be opposed to that like yeah. me challenging racism and feminism it's not a personal attack against anyone right it's a it's an attack against racism and if people are taking it personally then they need to go and think about why yeah. <laughs> like i just think that there are some folks out there who seem to think that like equality and liberation is a zero-sum game and if, that if somebody has like their liberation they're gonna lose out yeah. and that's quite a scary thought really like there's enough to go around there's, there's enough yeah. power and agency and self-determination bodily autonomy to go around and you know it's it's not a surprising reaction because you see men explode at women every day when, when no they're way. like, can you stop talking over me? And then the men go, oh my God, ah! Start being irrational and emotional and stuff. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, the fear. The fear of, be, of people being challenged is um, it's very fascinating to me. And I continue to, to watch in awe people so terrified of, of, of um, being challenged. Yeah. So, it's very it's, it's it, it, yeah, it would be intellectually interesting, like if it wasn't so horrific, like the potential, <laughs> like outcomes of some of these things. Though that's the problem, isn't it? It's like it'd be fascinating to watch as a kind of psychological study of how people are dealing with this fear if the fear didn't have real-world like mm. ramifications for people. Yeah, of course, of course. But but ultimately, I think that who I think that what journalism's getting better about who gets to put the case forward for the X and advocate for Y, like, that's good, because yeah. now, you know, Muslim women are actually speaking in the press instead of being spoken over and talked about. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, that, that's the kind of journalism I want to see, basically. Right. A journalism that's diverse and inclusive enough that when there's an issue affecting X community, there's suddenly from X communities talking and writing about it right. and speaking about it, but we're not there yet, but we're, we're moving towards it, I think. Well, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a, a positive thing. Uh, yeah. I hope that that's the case, yeah. Um, so the last question I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Uh, which is, uh, yeah. Um, do I have anything to plug? 
I don't think so. Let me think. No, I'm doing a lot of speaking towards the end of this year. Um, so if you want to come speak at your thing, email me. <laughs> That's about it, really. Yeah, where can people find you online if they're, if they're, if they're, if they're not familiar with you? Find me on Twitter at Rani Rani. And uh, yeah, but thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted uh, with you today. Uh, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to just to say goodbye to the audience. Okay, uh, bye everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. An additional plug from me this week. Can't really think of any way of linking it in with the episode particularly. But on Saturday at the Hackney Attic, it's the last stand-up tragedy of the year so stand-up tragedy is the live show and podcast that i produce and host where people stand up and do tragedy we put together a lineup of people doing spoken word comedy music storytelling and more and we combine that into a night with a sing-along at the end so that we don't go home too bleak a night filled with tragedy where you don't know what you're going to get next you're going to get tonal shifts from sad to funny to thought-provoking it's a really great lineup we've got a steampunk storytelling band experience a kind of theater thing we've got victorian children's horror stories we've got werewolf erotica we've got some solo material from one of the performers from the sketch group casual violence we've got true storytelling of a horrific true experience from Sajila Kershi, because that's right, it is tragic horror. That's what we're going out on. So it's going to be a kind of tie-in with Halloween and all that stuff. So we're going to be looking at sad, tragic things. We're also going to be looking at horrible, horrific things. But then we're going to end with a sing-along, with some dancing, with some drinking. So get your catharsis, come along, cry until you laugh, laugh until you cry. That's my plug. It starts at 7.30. It's £5 in advance. So buy your tickets from the Hackney Picture House, where the Hackney Attic is, in advance if you want to get the cheapest possible deal. But if you don't get your act together and you want to come along on the night, please do. It's £7 on the door. So hopefully see you then. And this will probably be one of the last plugs I'll be doing for Stand Up Tragedy this year, so you won't have to hear me going on about it. But just to remind you that it is also a podcast so you can hear the archive of all of the previous tragedy all of the different nights our edinburgh shows our themed london shows going back right to the beginning actually right back to where the tragedy all began you can have a listen to what we've done and in the coming months when we're having a break from the live shows we'll still be putting out a weekly podcast containing the best of the stuff that we've had before and maybe a few little extra treats thrown in here and there so you can check out Stand Up Tragedy on SoundCloud on iTunes on the Stitcher Smart Radio app basically anywhere that podcasts go online to hang out and in fact that gives me an opportunity to somehow tie it in with the conversation that you've just heard because the most recent Stand Up Tragedy podcast, last week's one, is a great way of getting into the mood for coming to tragic horror. And it features Del Hampton and Keith Jarrett, two people of colour who are talking about their lives, their experiences and intersectional themes in their performances that they did back at Tragic Friends. So 
there you go have a listen to that episode if you're interested in that kind of thing done in a spoken word format come along to tragic horror this saturday for an amazing night of tragedy Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at UBA Podcast you can find it on Facebook it's Getting Better Acquainted have a search on Facebook and like it or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk you can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way and on the Stitcher Smart Radio app you can download for your smartphone Stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.